This audio recording is of Easter Sunday at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1, begins like this. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled the stone, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is God's word. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in the history of the world. Nothing has changed the world like this event. 2,000-ish years ago, God became a Jewish man, lived about 30 years of relative obscurity as a Galilean carpenter. Then he walked around near the end of his life for about three years, preaching and teaching and performing many miracles. At the beginning of the last week of his life, which is where we've been spending our time the last few weeks, Matthew 26, 27, and now 28, when he began this last week of his life, he entered the city of Jerusalem, intending on celebrating the Passover, and he was heralded as king of the Jews, the promised king by thousands of people, large crowds. But by Thursday evening of that same week, he had been betrayed by one of his close friends. He had been falsely accused, and he had been abandoned and denied by all of his disciples. On Friday, early morning, he was mocked. He was beaten. He was eventually brutally crucified at the hands of Roman executioners because of the voices of his own Jewish people calling for it. Jesus was a threat to their earthly power, their prosperity, their popularity, any number of things. By sunset on that Friday, 
Evening set in, and Jesus of Nazareth was dead, and everyone knew it. The governor, Pilate, thought he was dead. The Jews who delivered him to the governor thought he was dead. The soldiers who executed him believed he was dead. The women who helped bury him in the rich man's tomb thought he was dead. His disciples thought he was dead. If nothing else, the world does agree, believe it or not, that a man, Jesus of Nazareth, died on a Roman cross. On Saturday of that same week, with Jesus' lifeless body safely buried in a tomb of limestone, the murderous Jewish leaders found themselves very fearful. They didn't believe that this gigantic stone that was actually designed to thwart grave robbers was enough to stop a few zealous disciples from possibly stealing the body and concocting some resurrection story. And so they took extra measures on this Saturday. They marked the grave with the imperial Roman seal. Then they set a guard there, several guards. But by Sunday, the tomb was empty. And it will be empty tomorrow and the next day and the next day. But on that morning, when the tomb was first empty, you had battle-hardened professional soldiers pretty much wet their armor and run. And the explanation they had was what had happened. An angel had descended in the most powerful of ways, moved the stone away, sat on top of it, and began to speak. And they became like dead men and ran. Fearing for their lives, the soldiers run into the city and they tell the priests everything that had happened. And we see these murderous leaders become conspirators as they pay the soldiers hush money to invent a creative story about sneaky disciples and sleeping soldiers, one that soldiers could potentially, if Pilate heard about it, would be executed themselves for their failure. But they promised to pay off or take care of Pilate as well. And as Matthew states, a Jew that is primarily writing to Jews with his gospel to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for, he says at the very end of his gospel that this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. And in all truth, it seems like the story that they made up is, is more fantastic and unbelievable than the truth. And the truth, if I haven't been plain enough, is simply this, that Jesus did rise bodily from the dead and he did walk out of his tomb alive, never to ever die again. And one of the greatest evidences of the truth of that statement, one of the greatest proofs, if you will, that the resurrection is real was a radical transformation and change in his disciples. As you read the Gospels, you see that the resurrection event transformed what were confused and heartbroken and fearful cowards into courageous leaders and martyrs through their radical lives and through their fantastic deaths. And I mean 
fantastic in the most brutal of ways. Peter was crucified upside down, not wanting to be crucified like his Savior, but not before he watched his wife die before him. All these men died for a lie? Seems like quite a waste. I'm not sure what lie is powerful enough for me to experience some of the things they experienced. But we see that through their radical lives and their fantastic deaths, how unshakable their belief in the resurrection of Jesus was. It gave them something that was more powerful than life itself, more powerful than saving the lives of those that they loved. And you ask yourself, well, was that something? And that something, I'm going to argue, was hope. Now, hope is powerful. Perhaps the most powerful thing that we can experience. And, and simply define, hope is, is a conviction. A deep conviction derived from the certainty of something happening. And these kinds of expectations, this kind of hope will greatly, and it does greatly influence who we are, how we think, how we feel, what we even perceive and expect and how we act. Hope is powerful. All of us hope. Whether you are a believer or not, you have a hope. But Christian hope, gospel hope, is fundamentally different than hope that's found in the world. There's great hope, and then there is what I'm calling this greater hope. Now, I want us to get into the mind, if you will, and it'll, it'll seem kind of dark at first. You're like, we're supposed to be celebrating Jesus' resurrection. We'll get there. But we've got to spend some time a little bit prior to that and understand what the disciples were thinking because there is a distinct difference between great hope and a greater hope. Before the crucifixion, the disciples possessed great hope. It was a powerful hope. It was a hope that convinced them enough to follow this guy for three years and to, in very real way, leave what they know, leave their jobs. Many had families that they certainly made sacrifices for in order to follow Jesus. They experienced ridicule. They experienced what were accusations from what were the religious leaders. So they had a great hope that was very powerful. And the disciples had certain expectations based off of that hope, like, like what they could see, what they predicted, what they imagined would happen. And despite Jesus' very direct and plain language, they did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead because they never expected him to die that way. See, like other Jews, these were Jewish men raised with an expectation of a Jewish king and a Messiah who would come and save. They expected the Messiah to arrive and establish an earthly kingdom. And as the first followers of the Messiah, right, the first group that, that the Messiah called, the first ones who, quote, figured it out, first ones to follow, right, they expected that they would share his reign with him. They expected that Jesus would depose the hypocritical religious leaders who had accused them so many times. They expected Jesus to overthrow powerful but idolatrous Rome. 
They expected Jesus to assume in a very real way the throne of David and reign. They believed this so strongly that even on the evening of the Passover that they celebrated with Jesus, after he had washed their feet, after he had, he had been doing the covenant, they argued about who would be the greatest in Jesus' royal entourage. The disciples had great hope, but it's possible that they hoped in the wrong things. And we can't really blame them. It's because we kind of know the story, we know how it ends or how it begins again. It's difficult to blame considering their past experiences that they should have expected perhaps something different. Before Friday, they had been led to believe that everything that they expected would come to pass because, I mean, heck, this was Jesus. This is the guy that, that turned water into wine. This, Jesus was the guy who caused the blind to see. Jesus was the one who helped lame to walk, who had never walked before their entire life. Jesus was the one who walked on water. He was the one who fed thousands of people with a kid's lunch. This is the guy who healed the sick from a distance. Jesus is the one who brought the dead to life. So we can't be too hard on the disciples, but what we see in terms of what was driving them, what were they expecting, what were they hoping, well, their hopes were very earthly. Their expectations were based on their own understanding, and their plans were largely about themselves. Within hours, though, of singing with Jesus, right, and, and arguing or wondering about their place in Jesus' court, everything changed. That hope that they were so certain, that vision for their life of how it was going to unfold so certain, suddenly died. Within hours of that high, high, right, they watched as their king was betrayed by one of his closest friends, their friend. They watched him be secretly arrested by religious leaders that, that they had trusted at some level. They saw him falsely accused. After a few more hours, they watched their teacher be condemned by the religious and political leaders, tried illegally, and then sentenced to die. Can you imagine it? Like, whoa, 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 what's going on? What, when's this going to stop? This is snowball, getting worse and worse, waiting for Jesus to do something. By morning, they're watching their master stripped of his clothing, mocked, spit on, beaten, only have to carry his own heavy cross to where they will hang him on it. And finally, we can imagine his disciples, the last vestiges of hope, right? Well, maybe it's right when, they, when he gets to the hill. Maybe it's going to be dramatic. They cringe as they see them spike their Lord to the cross and raise him up between two thieves and then play games for his clothes and mock him as he hangs there. See, even though things had gone exactly as God had planned, even though things went exactly as Jesus predicted that they would, his disciples were still very perplexed because it wasn't what they hoped in. 
Now, that shouldn't be an experience that's all too unfamiliar to us. Perhaps it is for you, but it's certainly not for me. I think maybe often, but at least at times, we find ourselves in circumstances that we certainly don't expect or want. And our first thought when things don't unfold the way that we were certain they were going to, our first thought is, this can't be right. Right? This can't be, this this doesn't make sense. Right? This is not how things are supposed to happen. Can you imagine the disciples saying that, right? This is not supposed to happen like this. When that happens to us, we begin to wonder if we're honest, whether God's failed us. I mean, we did, we followed, we did what we're supposed to do. Like, I I expected it to go this way. The truth of it is this. Just because men fail, and I say men and women fail, which they will, just because spouses fail or pastors fail, surprise, pastors fail, or churches fail or institutions fail, don't ever believe that means God failed. But if we're not careful, when things don't come to pass as we've anticipated and as we've laid it out, we will be tempted to ask, what is wrong with God? Instead of asking, what is wrong with our expectations of Him? See, really simple truth that is the kind of thing you should write on your mirror so you see it every morning. When Jesus falls short of your expectations in whatever area of life that might be, know that the problem is not with Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with disappointment. In fact, I think there's something wrong with not being disappointed at times. Not grieving that that sense of, you know, when things didn't unfold the way you'd hoped. Because we certainly could hope for bad things, but many times we are hoping for very good things. And there's nothing wrong with disappointment. There's nothing wrong with grief. There's something weird with you if you probably don't experience that. But when disappointment leads to devastation, when your disappointment leads to a place where you are shaking at the core of your life, it's likely that your hope was in something earthly. That something became too important to you. Whatever that might have been. Now, I believe that God uses these kinds of experiences to reveal things to us, particularly to reveal the true source of our hope, whether it's based on our own imagination, our own reason, our own kind of created expectations, or on God's revelation. Let's not forget the disciples didn't hear what Jesus clearly said. They thought about what they thought, their words, their ideas. I believe that those who place great hope, and that's what we're talking about, having great hope 
Those who place great hope on the things of this world are typically characterized by one major thing, and that is fear. And you know it by this way. Like, if you want to ask, like, where, where am I truly hoping in in life? Where does my security come from? Where does my meaning come from? Where does my salvation come from? If you want to know, ask, what do you fear losing most? What, if taken away in your life, would devastate you? It's possible whatever that thing is, is becoming an idol. You see the men who, um, whether it be the Jewish leaders or the Roman soldiers or the disciples themselves, you see that um, those who did not believe in the resurrection through Saturday, right? That includes the disciples at this point. They're governed by fear. The disciples are hiding in fear. The leaders are fearful because they don't know where the body is. The soldiers are fearful for themselves. They're all governed by fear. Essentially, they're afraid of losing whatever it is they think they have to have. Power, understanding, reputation, influence, who knows? And when you hope in the wrong thing, when you are are fearful of losing something that's become too important to you, In order to protect that thing, you know what you'll do? You'll sin. Isn't that what the Jewish leaders do? No, I'm not going to lose this influence here. I'm not going to lose this power here. I'll cover it up. I will do whatever I can. I will make every effort, even sin, to make my vision for how things are supposed to be come to happen. Great hope in the things of the world always results in fear because the truth is those things can always be taken away. Now, sometimes when we sin to protect that hope that we have, right, that that vision we have for our life, sometimes we can save that hope, at least temporarily. But eventually, that idol dies. And when that idol dies, you go from great hope to great hopelessness. And that's what you see the experience of the disciples. Like the disciples from from Friday evening, a lot of shock, of loss, it transitions into Saturday where they have a deep and abiding sense of hopelessness. Where the vision for what they had is the shock of it's gone, now it's like, What do we do now? All the disciples had fled. On the cross, they had seen every expectation they had die in the most brutal of ways. We wonder what they did after that. Were they getting together? Were they alone? Were they crying? Were they angry? Were they just kind of staring? Just like, what has happened? How could we have been so wrong? How could we have missed it so much? Did I just waste three years of my life? Saturday was incredibly dark and depressing. I think it was characterized by hopelessness. And the thing about hopelessness is 
See, the absence of hope is just as powerful as its presence. The absence of hope, hopelessness transforms the disciples too. It could transform any of us. In their case, what was deep conviction, conviction enough to follow this this teacher for three years to, to transform their lives, deep conviction suddenly gave way to doubt. And as you see reading other Gospels, you begin to see that they're not all hanging out together. They're all doing their different things. And they hung out together for three years. And when you see someone experience hopelessness, one of the telltale signs of that is they go from community to isolation. Just want to be alone. And you also see what was optimism, what was looking at, you know, glasses half full, didn't become pessimism, it becomes antagonism. Now this is no more evident than uh, in one of the disciples named Thomas. You may have heard of Thomas. He's often called Doubting Thomas. His story isn't recorded here in Matthew, but it is recorded in John chapter 20 largely. And I've always been intrigued by Thomas. Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus first appeared. So as you read chapter 20, it says that um, 10 of the disciples were together. They were locked in a room, scared, Ten were there because Judas was dead. Thomas was nowhere to be found. It's Sunday evening. Jesus has risen from the dead. They've had women report that, and they're like, eh, maybe, I don't know if we believe that. They're behind closed doors. They're unsure. They're scared, and then Jesus appears to them. It's peace be with you. Obviously, they're joyful, they are excited, they are worshiping Jesus, and yet John notes, but Thomas was not there. He doesn't tell us where he was, he didn't say why he wasn't there, but we know he wasn't there. And so what do the disciples do the next day? Monday comes, let's go find tea, let's go find it, we got to tell them what's going on. They've been friends for a long time, they've been together for three years, they were fishermen before that. They run to find Thomas. Thomas, Thomas, guess what? We've seen the Lord. He's alive. We touched him, man. We we were with him last night. It was amazing. Where were you? And Thomas is just cold. And if you read his response in John 20, it sounds like someone who could just care less about what they've experienced. In my own words, as his friends are rejoicing and excited, you can imagine, I mean, it's just difficult to imagine meeting Jesus face to face, but having gone from crucifixion to resurrection, and they're just like, oh my gosh. And he's just like, whatever. Hey, Jesus is dead, guys. Maybe he's not dead to you, but he's dead to me. God didn't come through for me, guys. It's over. It's a great run. We did some good things. It's done. I gave this guy three years, and he didn't do what I wanted. I'm so happy for you. I'm so glad he showed up for you. 
but he didn't show up for me. And that's a really good question, guys. Why didn't he show up for me? In fact, why didn't he wait for me to arrive? Why didn't he come and find me? Why doesn't he show up right now? Why does he show up right now? Glad you guys had your little experience, but until I see his body with the holes in his hands and the hole in his side, unless I can poke it in there, I'm never going to believe. So leave me alone. You can just, it doesn't get more hopeless than that. Especially contrasted with such hope-filled guys. Everything died that day for Thomas. And what could have been will never be in his mind. And that's all he can think about. What could have been? What could have been? And what is now? It's not that great. And what does Thomas do? Yeah, you know what? God's got to... If he proves himself to me, I'll, maybe I'll believe him. If he does what I think is impossible, yeah, maybe I'll believe him then. But I know he's not going to. He's rejected Jesus and feels justified because of what Jesus didn't do. And the truth is, he trusted more in what he desired than what Jesus actually said. Hopelessness all rooted in a great hope he put in the wrong place. But there's a greater hope. There's a greater hope. There's a Christian hope that is fundamentally different than the world's hope. The truth is, it would be another week before Thomas would meet Jesus face to face. Man, that's tough. Jesus let him sit in his despair for a week. It says eight days later is when Jesus finally shows up. You can imagine during that eight days, he just becomes more bitter, more antagonistic, especially towards his charismatic brothers who are super excited about Jesus now. It just makes them sick. But somehow they convince Thomas to gather together in the same place and Jesus appears again. And Jesus will end up spending over 40 days with them. But this is where he appears finally to Thomas. And he talks directly to Thomas. And he just says, Thomas, here I am. Here I am, Thomas. I heard you, Thomas. Touch me. Believe, Thomas. And Thomas does believe. And Thomas does touch him. And Thomas does worship him in that very moment and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus responds to him in a way that um, perhaps is unexpected, but it's for us. In verse 28 of chapter 20, says, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That moment changed Thomas. 
It transformed Thomas from, from cynical, hopeless guy into a hope-filled church planner and martyr. Thomas was the guy to uh, have traveled very far. In fact, some argue that he traveled as far as China to preach the gospel. He met his demise when he was lanced in India where he was buried. And you go, what changed? What changed this guy from, I'll never believe? He had a new and greater hope. A greater hope is what came to characterize all the men who met Jesus face to face. A greater hope that was greater than anything they may experience in this life. They no longer hoped in the things of this world. They didn't hope in their own goodness or their own strength or their own wisdom. They had a greater hope, what I love the Bible calls a hope against hope. What is a greater hope? It is a hope against hope. What does that even mean? Great question. Paul uses that phrase in Romans chapter 4 when he's talking about really the father of Judaism, the one in whom the covenant was made of faith, Abraham. And you may not understand this or remember this, but in Genesis 12, which we will preach uh, in the next couple months, God comes and speaks to Abraham. He makes him some promises. Now, Abraham's 99 years old. He's an old dude. 99 was old then as it is now. And his wife was stricken in years. She was barren. She had no children. And God made him this great, crazy promise about all the children he's going to have, these great nations that were to come from him. And he's walking around going, are you kidding me? I'm 99. My wife and I have been sleeping in separate beds for the last 25 years. And you're telling me we're going to have a bunch of kids and we don't even have one. But this is what Paul records him as experiencing in Romans 4, verse 18. It says, in hope. He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which there are considerable things to be weakened there. He says, he didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now check this out, verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The greater hope is a hope 
in the resurrection. The truth of the resurrection gives me hope when there is no reason to reasonably have it. When reality falls short of our expectations, which is bound to happen, the Christian doesn't ask, what am I going to do now? Right? Isn't that what is the most natural thing for us to ask? We have this vision for how life is going to work out, how our kids are going to behave, how our jobs are going to go, how our health is going to be, and then what doesn't happen, well, what do I do now? I had it all planned out. I had these expectations. What am I supposed to do now? Where's your hope? Because the Christian is supposed to ask, and I say supposed to because we struggle with this. Christian doesn't ask, what am I supposed to do now? Christian asks, what is God doing now? What is God doing here? Because I know he's doing something. How do I know that? The resurrection. There's no hope there. Looks pretty dire. But God was there. God was working. God was doing. The world's hope fundamentally different than the Christian hope. The world's hope is based on what is seen. Christian hope is based on what is unseen. The world's hope is based on what can be understood and what can be reasoned and what can be measured, but the Christian hope is based on what God has revealed even if we don't fully understand. The world's hope is based on things that can be ultimately lost given enough time, but the world's Christian hope is based on that which can never be taken away, even in eternity. See, a greater hope is a hope that sees beyond the loss of Friday, not trying to dismiss the disappointment or the pain of that. Loss is loss is loss. But a greater hope even sees you past that and through the depression of Saturday of dealing with, okay, this isn't going to happen the way I thought, but it lifts you through and takes you to Sunday. And Sunday is the day of resurrection. Sunday is the day where ashes become beauty, where life or death leads to life. It is a hope in a living Savior. And please hear this. Greater hope is hope in a living Savior who never, ever, ever, ever ceases to declare this, that even if you lose everything, he says, I will never lose you. Even if you lose everything, even if you lose blank, enter your worst fear. He says, I will never lose you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, even in death. The resurrection gives us an amazingly powerful hope to be believed when there is no hope to be seen. And what it does is it transforms the way I hope. I'm no longer hoping in my goodness because it takes but a few seconds to show how bad I really am. I hope in His grace. 
I'm not hoping in my power to fix or, or my ability to control or my power to do anything. I am hoping and trusting in his sovereignty to do more than I could possibly imagine. I'm not hoping in my understanding because it's limited and the older I get, the less I realize I really truly understand I'm trusting in his revealed wisdom. I'm not hoping in even my relationships. I'm not hoping in my ability to make them perfect or to reconcile them wonderfully. I'm hoping in his love and in his power to forgive me that I might forgive others. I'm not even hoping in this life. It's not that this life doesn't have joy in it. It's that this life is temporary and my hope is in my future resurrection with him. And I've said this before, when you're with Jesus for 70 million years, think about it, 70 million years, this blip of a life, the most wonderful things you have and the most horrible things, right? The most horrible things you experience in this blip of a life, being with Jesus for 70 million years, is going to feel like stubbing your toe. And the most wonderful things are going to be like winning the third grade checkers championship. Well done, right? Our perspective is off. Our hope needs to be found in eternity. The resurrection gives me hope now in conquering my sin because Jesus has already conquered it. The resurrection gives me hope in facing my disillusionment as I suffer. The resurrection gives me hope in enduring whatever I might experience here in terms of disappointment or pain, revealing to me that it's not meaningless, that God is not distant, that he is in control, that he is loving. And the resurrection gives me genuine joy, genuine joy in facing my death. In conclusion, I spoke with a good friend of mine who... uh, he was offended when I said he was an atheist, but I think he actually is, maybe an agnostic. But I started texting him questions asking about Jesus. Hey, what do you think? Did Jesus die? Oh, I think he probably died. Going back and forth, and eventually he called me up and goes, I think you're just getting sermon fodder for your sermon this Sunday for Easter. <laughs> I said, I won't mention your name. <laughs> but I had an interesting conversation with him. And it was similar to this. If Jesus is dead, and this is just a really complex or even simple fabricated story, then sin is condemning. Suffering has absolutely no meaning. And death is the most terrifying thing I can imagine. If Jesus is dead, or his carcass is yet to be found somewhere laying around, there is absolutely nothing to look forward to because this is all there is. But in fact, Jesus has risen from the dead. And there is infinitely more than this, praise God. And there is everything to look forward to 
and nothing to lose and everything to gain. Jesus is alive and the empty tomb reminds us that nothing, nothing can take away our hope. Not time, not poverty, not hardship, not sin, not persecution, not even death. Yes, you may experience those things, but you don't have to lose hope in them because our hope isn't in this world, it's in him. And he's alive. The power of our hope is that it is greater than every possible unfulfilled expectation in this life. Ours is a living hope that abides with us in this life and in the next. And I'll close with an amazing verse that I pray we will believe and take heart. It is out of 1 Peter chapter 1, the first few verses. It says this, Blessed be, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope, one that cannot be taken away even in death. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what is that hope? It is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power, not by my strength, not by my will, but by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice. Not, I'll rejoice someday when I have hope. We have hope now. In this we rejoice, though right now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And we have. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Today, we will all leave here some will leave here fearful, and I pray many will leave here joyful. Some will leave doubtful, and some will leave confident. Some will leave filled with hope, and some will leave hopeless. And the difference between hopeless and hope is whether or not you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead and you know that there's more than just this life. And I invite you to receive a free gift of salvation if you would only confess and believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And we're going to have baptisms. Know that baptisms public confession of that conviction that I believe I am dying and I'm rising not to have new life but to have new life now and in eternity and it is the 
baseline, most clearest picture of a declaration, I believe Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross for my sins, and I believe he rose from the dead. End of story, or actually beginning of it. Amen? Let's pray.